Money, sex, and power combine to make a toxic cocktail. Power, the abuse of power, manipulation, and violence, this story has it all. It stirs people's imagination, which is why there are so many paintings of it, even a play and an opera. This is a political story, we should notice. It's about someone called a king. This is a story that holds that so-called king morally accountable. I guess that means this story mixes politics and religion. Many people in our country today have strong feelings about mixing politics and religion. There seem to be two opposite feelings about it in our country. Some say politics and religion should never mix under any circumstances. Others mix them quite purposefully, but to opposite ends. On the one hand, Christian nationalism is on the rise in America. People hold the Bible in one hand and the flag in the other. They quote the Bible, at least the parts they like, ignoring the ones they don't like, and make it all sound as though Jesus were a white middle-class man. You can almost picture him in this version, being, cover being concerned about his lawn and his golf game. On the other hand, some people see politics and religion mixed in an opposite way. They look at the Bible's many calls for justice for the poor, inclusion of the outcast, and equality of all people made in God's image, and conclude that God's will must include political as well as personal morality. I admit that is my view, which I feel called to pre precisely because of the Bible. The whole history of the prophets of Israel, as our Amos reading illustrated, is a record of repeated criticisms by the prophets of injustices and abuses of power by the people in political control. Often, prophets paid a high price for that criticism, just as John did, just as Jesus did. Here is the point that is inescapable for me. God cares about all of the people created in God's image. All people have dignity. All people are worthy of respect. All people belong in God's family, no exceptions. And so, when humans are hurt by those in power, when there is corruption and abuse of power, God cares. That is what this story is about. This story takes some liberties with the facts. Mark calls Herod king. He's not actually king. His father was Herod the Great, a client king that Rome tolerated, but that had all changed after his death. The Herod of this story, called Herod Antipas, was in charge only of the region of Galilee, where Nazareth is. Why would Mark call him a king if he were not? Probably to mock him. In the story, Herod gives himself a birthday party, like a king might do, and promises half of his, quote, kingdom to the dancer who famously, quote, pleased him. Why mock him? Because he is completely pathetic. Not only is he not really a king, he is not even in control of anything, as we will see. From the beginning of the story, without any spoiler alert, we are told the conclusion. Herod is responsible for the death of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. In fact, Mark tells us that Herod fears that Jesus is actually John come back to life, which would be potentially bad news for his killer. Herod then is living in some kind of guilt and dread. Mark tells us, quote, When Herod heard of it, meaning Jesus' growing fame, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. What follows is the description of how Herod came to behead John. We find out that it wasn't his idea, that in fact he was fascinated by John, even, quote, feared him because he recognized him as a, quote, righteous man. So why was John being held at all? 
he had offended Herod's wife, Herodias, by calling into question the legitimacy of their union. She used to be Herod's brother's wife. Now, it's true that the law of Moses forbids a man to marry his brother's wife, but there's more reason than just that to oppose this union. Herod was also her uncle. In the English version of the story we read, it says, quote, John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Those words, not lawful, is a bit of a free translation of the text that originally says something more like, it isn't done, meaning it's morally out of bounds. Now, of course, that criticism made Mrs. Herodias angry, but let's not rush past what is happening here. John the Baptist is presuming that Herod and his family are not at the top of the moral food chain free to consume at will. This means that they are under obligations that supersede them in power and authority. John is saying that they are not in charge. God is. This is why politics and religion mix. No one is above the moral law. No king, no president, no member of Congress or anybody, no matter how powerful, is free of moral obligations. Just as Amos confronted King Ahab, so John confronted Herod. Later, Jesus himself will confront the powers that be in Jerusalem, and he too will pay for it with his life. The central point is actually not that Herod's marriage violated the law from Leviticus. The central point is that the governmental authority is not the highest authority. Perhaps this is what was most offensive to Herod's wife, that her family's authority was, after all, penultimate, accountable to the standards of morality and ethics that they were not free to flaunt. The way Mark tells this story, Herod looks ridiculous and for good reason. At his party, his stepdaughter, the daughter of his brother, who is actually also his own niece, does what normally only the prostitutes of that world did, dance for the men. There are lots of paintings of this dance, but all of the paintings I have seen get it wrong. They make the dancer a mature woman. But Mark calls her a girl, and back then, females post-puberty were not called girls, as they sometimes are in our culture. Mark expects us to be horrified by the, quote, delight this child dancer gave to Herod. Mark completes the picture of Herod he has been painting by recording the ridiculous promise Herod gave her of up to half my kingdom, he says, as if his administration of a morsel of Roman territory gave him the right to make that foolish offer. Then we watch his wife manipulate her own daughter and her husband at the same time by demanding the beheading of innocent, righteous John. Why are we given such a disgusting story? What does it mean to us? This is crucial. At the very center of our faith is the cross the instrument of execution used by a corrupt government to execute an innocent person, Jesus. By itself, that should be enough to make it clear to us that governmental power may be used for illegitimate ends. It is right to hold everyone accountable. This is why we must not ever allow Christianity to become the handmaiden or chaplain to any political party. We must be ready to hold accountable anyone, 
and everyone in office. We may have strong political positions, but we cannot wear any jersey uncritically. Just because something is legal today does not make it right. For example, laws like Citizens United that make it legal to flood the political process with dark money, it doesn't make it right. And just because something is illegal today does not make it wrong. Giving water to someone who's waiting to vote is not wrong, even if Georgia's laws say so today. Laws are human products, often made by people with vested interests. The Christian tradition, which we inherit from our Jewish ancestors, calls us to hold our entire political process up to scrutiny and, if necessary, criticism. We want what we believe God wants, that all people would be free of oppression and discrimination. We believe humans have rights to basic standards necessary for life just because they are humans. We believe that everyone should be treated with equality without regard to gender or gender identification, race, sexual orientation, religion, or any other condition. This is because we believe that we are all created by and loved by God. We are God's people and the sheep of God's pasture. It is to God alone that we give our ultimate allegiance.